moving. If we can get persons to come to the center aisle and if you move up a little tighter, that would be greatly appreciated for those who are in the other constituency to the back. All right, we'd appreciate that. Just a bit of information before we uh, go any further. Uh, we should have maybe reminded you this morning, or at least informed you, that you would have noticed the absence of uh, Pastor Lee, who is away and will be for the next Sunday as well, um, doing um, his regular checkup, scheduled checkup, and again, Samara and I guess, with his dear wife, Sister Nancy. And also, personnel from the office, uh, Brother Tommy Aubrey and his dear wife, Kathy, they are away, went off earlier, late last week, and they should be back on the island um, before midnight tonight. Um, so um, just to bring you up to date on what's happening there. But it is certainly our joy to have you. Again, you would have planned to be here because you've made arrangements to be here, and we are absolutely delighted that you showed up. Um, just in case, though, we have anybody for the first time, if this is your first time with us, would you please um, just let us know by wave, raising a hand so we can give you a special welcome. A gentleman there has raised his hand. Thank you so kindly for coming um, to spend some, uh, well, some wonderful moments with us as we worship God together. Let's give him a round of applause, please. Thank you. Thank you. And later on, at least some other people will mob you to say that personally, how appreciative they are that you've shared with us or come to share with us this evening. Would you pause now with me? as we speak to our Heavenly Father and commit and rededicate ourselves to him and this act of service this evening. Let us pray. Our Father, we are again overwhelmed because of your goodness towards us. We thank you that you have allowed us once again the opportunity to be gathered here in this place to focus upon you, to worship you in a corporate manner. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when we were unfaithful to you. You are indeed a good God. We thank you for everything that will take place this evening, but even before we do so, Lord, we ask that even now, that you will cause us to be focused upon you. Remove any distractions that may cause us to miss what you have to say to us through the music and through the spoken word. Lord, we ask this because of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, even while we were Yet sinners, he, we were on his mind. To this end, Lord, we ask again, in Jesus' name, amen. And now for a solo through a metal instrument by Brother Ferguson, a special.
Thank you, Brother Ferguson. My Jesus, I love thee. As I mentioned earlier, we will be participating around the Lord's table this evening, and I believe it is a very significant. One of the fears that I have is that maybe sometimes we may take this for granted because it is so common that we neglect to really grasp the significance of this event. That will be most unfortunate. And so if I was to pray, it would simply be this, that the Lord would cause us to really understand the significance of this opportunity that we have to focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I remembered uh, my brief comment this morning with reference to uh, Jesus being invited for dinner by a Pharisee who invited some of his friends to come along. This evening, we are being invited to his table. And just to show you the contrast, I would like to read those two passages and then make a brief comment before those assisting with the Lord's table come forward. In Luke chapter 11, verse 37, is where I will be reading for about five verses. And then we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 27 and uh, to verse 31. Um, those of you who have your Bibles might wish to follow. But in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 41, reads as follows. Now, when he had spoken... A Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness, you foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside made the inside also? Verse 41. But give that which is within us charity, and then all things are clean for you. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 starting from verse 27. And this is in the middle of the context of the Lord's Supper that you are very familiar with. But I'm starting in the middle from 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Verse 31. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. And I pause there. I think the two references draw a contrast. The Pharisees who invited Jesus to dinner for lunch was concerned that as soon as Jesus got in, Jesus reclined and waited to be served. The Pharisees were Shocked, disappointed, I guess, would be a mild way of saying it, especially all of his other Pharisee friends, that Jesus did not go through the ceremonial washing, which is an outward washing. And Jesus promptly told him that they were more concerned, and he used the implements that they would normally use, the cup and the platter, that they were clean on the outside. And Jesus focused on what's on the inside. That was the point. And he simply said to the man, if 
if you were to, in your heart, if you were to give or let charity reign in your heart. In other words, if you were concerned about those people outside, the people who you supposedly minister to, from your heart, you would have been clean. In other words, it's more important to have a clean heart than necessarily the ceremony saying that you would have washed your hand with some disinfectant or something of that kind. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and uh, from verse 27 in the middle of that uh, context of the Lord's Supper, now we are being invited to come to Jesus' table and he's telling us to examine ourselves. Very significantly, uh, I think, the statement there in terms of what is the purpose of the examination? And we hear it over and over here every time we have this opportunity uh, before we partake. It is simply not designed to act as a barrier or prevention from you from participating, but simply to make sure that you do not enter into this very significant event without having thoroughly examined yourself. And it is very personal. None of us can do that for you. Examine yourself. In other words, what's your status with relationship to God? What's your status with relationship to the body of Christ, the other members of the incredible body of Christ? Is there something at odds between you and another member of the body of Christ? If you participate and there is some odd between you and another member of the body of Christ, then you participate by bringing judgment to yourself. And we are admonished, one, not to do so. If there is something um, between you, some conflict, something that needs to be resolved, you are to go and correct that first. Then come and participate. And then another context would be this. If you have not um, placed faith in Jesus Christ, then at this moment, you are admonished not to participate. But we're saying this. That's something that you can correct even now as well, to place faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do so, you would instantly be qualified because when we partake, we are proclaiming the death of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ. And so if you are seated here this evening and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I implore you, beg you, that you place faith in Jesus Christ. He loves you, and he has demonstrated that in such a profound and powerful way at Calvary. The innocent dying for you, me, the guilty. What love? What love? The price has been paid for you. All you need to do now is to make yourself responsive to the invitation. Accept it and you can participate in this remembrance service. We, we remember, I think today is recognized certainly here in the Bahamas as Remembrance Day for those persons who would have served in any of the First, Second World War. And we are indeed grateful for those persons who would have served so faithfully uh, to represent our country. We have been called to remember someone much greater than all of those persons who would have served in any of our wars and that is to remember the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he asks us to do just that. And again, when we partake of the cup, when we partake of the bread, representative of his blood and his body, we focus on what, what took place there on Calvary for our sake, for our benefit. I hope we do not lose the significance of this because it becomes routine and it's just another event. But rather, it speaks loudly, profoundly, of the death of our Savior. And what does that mean? For us, that's our salvation. That's our hope, because he is alive today. And so I encourage you to know, not let this moment or any future moments that God will allow us to experience to lose the significance of this opportunity that we are invited to his table and to sit and reflect upon him. Please do not allow the frequency or the commonality of this event to be lost, but to really focus on what this means. 
and again, as brothers and sisters, part of the incredible body of Christ, we have this opportunity to sit together, eat as it were from the same plate, drink from the same cup. That's why it's important that you spend time reflecting and making sure that there is nothing between you and God. But before that, that there is nothing between you and another believer. Because if so, then you would not have judged yourselves of the body rightly and then partake. And the Bible tells us that that's why among us there, some of us are weak, yes, and some even die. Physically, psychologically, emotionally, otherwise. I'm not saying that you are separated from him spiritually because we know that's a one-time transaction that is permanently fixed, again, because of the grace of God. But certainly, God's word is always true. Please examine yourself. And let's pause even now as we do just that. And then in a moment, I will ask those who are assisting this evening to please come forward. But let's really reflect, examine ourselves. It's between you and God. Nobody else at this time should factor in, except if there is an order, if a sister or brother is here, that you have an order or something between you, something that needs to be resolved, please respond. Let the Holy Spirit direct your thinking and your feet, if necessary, and do what is right. Let us examine ourselves. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the invitation to sit at your table, to eat from your table, to fellowship with you, and to fellowship with one another. But we recognize that you have set conditions for us to do so without experiencing judgment. And that is, in a sense, we must come to you with clean hands and pure hearts. Lord, we have not always had clean hands and pure hearts, especially to our fellow brothers and sisters. And so even now, Lord, we publicly, quietly confess them to you because we cannot truly hide them from you, for you see the depth of our hearts. Lord, thank you that we have the assurance that when we confess our sins, that you are faithful and you're just, and you promise to forgive us of our sins. What a glorious promise and a liberating reality that is for us. Thank you for having thought of our frailty and put in place measures for us to come back and to continue with our fellowship with you. Now, Father, as we prepare to remember you and we continue to acknowledge with gratitude the extent to which you have demonstrated your love for us, we ask that you will speak to us as individuals. Move us to where we need to be moved. Change us so that you might be seen more clearly in the context of the environment that you place us. Because you indeed, you indeed, are worthy to be praised. These things, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Those who are serving, would you please come to the front? While they're coming, let's sing Nothing but the Blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me no, no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Aren't you grateful for the blood? There is a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's face, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains.
church of God, be saved to sin no this sacred feast, this remembrance of our Lord's death on our behalf. Let us sing in memory of the Savior's love with the chorus, O the blood of Jesus. In memory of the Savior's love, we keep this sacred feast. Where Right heart is made a welcome guest. By faith we take the bread of life with which our souls are fed. The cup in token of his blood that was for Father, we come once again before your holy presence to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you because of the blood of Jesus. And Father, as we come, we thank you for the bread which we are about to receive. We ask your blessings upon it as a church body. And we will give you praise and thanks for we ask these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. And as we take this bread, as we partake together, let us continue to remember what our Lord and Savior did for us on Calvary's tree. Shall we partake? As we partake of this cup, remembering Christ's death on the cross, we also remember that Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And on behalf of us sinners, Christ shed his blood freely. Died a terrible, painful death on our behalf. It's because of his great love for us. And even more so, we remember his resurrection, that we might have victory over death. We just give thanks and we praise him because only he is worthy of our praise and our honor and our obedience. We just thank you, Lord, 
for this cup that we can remember your great sacrifice. Amen. Let us together, as we hold this cup in our hand, symbolically representing the precious, powerful, cleansing blood of our Savior. Let us partake of the cup together. Let us continue with our worship, and at this time, our worship in the form of our tithes and our offering. I'm going to ask you to please bow with me as we give thanks. Once again, Father, we are privileged and grateful that you have allowed us to worship you in this way as we return to you our tithes and our offering. Lord, this is so minuscule in relationship to the multiple blessings that you have so freely given to us moment by moment, day in and day out. And so as we worship you in this form, we do so with glad hearts. We ask that as we do so, Lord, that those responsible for its distribution, that they will do so with your guidance so that others might be brought into the kingdom others edified, but ultimately, Lord, you be exalted. These things, Father, we ask with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. evening. You pause with me as we pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful for the opportunity you've given us once again to assemble as your people in your house. We ask, O Lord, that you will humble our hearts as we prepare to hear from you this evening. Help us to uh, be obedient to your voice often your still small voice, though you speak to us in a collective fashion, we know, Lord, that you also speak to us individually. So help us, Lord, to be responsive and obedient to whatever you say to us, regardless of how 
uh, impacting it may be upon our hearts and our minds. Help us to humble ourselves in your presence this evening as we commit this time of ministry of your word to you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Um, every so often, um, I would run into an old friend or an old acquaintance, and I'm sure you do too, and um, you would get into a conversation and ask them how things are going and how family is doing, and you'd probably have a remembrance of some family member that they have who was also kind of troublesome. And their response would often be, well, I'm keeping him in check, or I'm keeping her in check. And, um, and so whenever we talk about keeping someone or someone in check, we know the thought is always uh, about maintaining control over that particular individual or that something, whatever it is. And um, that has been something that God has always challenged us with uh, in, in, in our Christian experience. Even from the dawning of human history, we have God challenging, uh, giving such a challenge when we have the first recorded incident of sibling rivalry in the Bible. We remember Cain and Abel and how they both brought sacrifices to God and God accepted one and didn't accept the other. And of course, uh, the one who was rejected had a certain demeanor about him. And uh, rather than God confront him and say, son, why are you vexed? God simply asked him or said to him, you will be accepted if you do what is right. And we have this recorded in Genesis chapter 4. But if you refuse to do what is right, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you but you must subdue it. Or, in other words, you must keep it in check and be its master. One of the most striking books in the Bible that provides some serious steps about how we can keep sin in check uh, gives us some insight into the life of a very unique man, um, whom we know as Job. Um, the book sketches a picture of a, a good man's outstanding life. And that was described by God himself. But it also shows us that purity of vision is at the very foundation of true holiness. Again, from the life of this outstanding man. But it also presents a challenge to not only watch your steps, but also watch your sight as well. Again, from the life of this one outstanding man. And then it also teaches us that the way we treat subordinates demonstrates the kind of integrity that we have in our own lives. Uh, and so God himself um, sets the pace when he talks about who this man is. He describes Job in a very unique way with basically just four details. The opening book of, Je of Job chapter 1 begins by God describing uh, Job to Satan. You could say he was really bragging about, about Job, about his character. And he mentions four things. He says, first of all, he's blameless. And then he's a man of not just integrity, but he says complete integrity. He fears God, and he stays away from evil. So if there's anybody who could teach us anything about how to keep sin in check... I would say it would probably be Job, right? He would probably be the classical person who would be able to tell us how we can keep sin in check. And that's what we want to look at today, uh, tonight, just briefly. In, uh, in the 29th chapter of Job, Job outlined how he evaluated his good deeds, how he himself did that. And then in the chapter that we want to focus on uh, this evening, chapter 31, he catalogued some sins that he was very careful not to commit in three areas of his life that mattered the most. And uh, we would take note of those three areas. The first area that he kept sin in check was in his heart. In his heart. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 31, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. Not only did Job 
treat the great sin, and many people don't see it as a great sin today, but it is a great sin. Job not only saw or treated the great sin of adultery like it was a plague, or like, what, that, that dengue fever thing that we had the other day? Probably treated like it was dengue fever by avoiding it. But he also avoided the first step of even taking a look at a woman in a lustful way. Because it all begins in the heart. And so, by doing so, he could counter the criticisms of his friends who were claiming that he had to have some kind of sin in his life that caused him to suffer the way that he was suffering. But he could truthfully say that he was blameless both outward of outward and inward sins. Just by that one statement he makes in the opening chapter of verse 31. But let's look at the other verses. Verse 2. For what has God above chosen for us? And I'm reading from the New, uh, the, the New Living Translation. What is our inheritance from the Almighty on high? Verse 3. Isn't it calamity for the wicked and misfortune for those who do evil? Verse 4. Doesn't he see everything I do and every step I take? Ever thought about that? God sees everything that we do and every step that we take. Now, when you're driving, the only time that you pay any attention to the law really is when you see a police officer, right? You make sure that you know, everything's going fine, everything's, I'm not doing anything out of the way. And the policemen are trained to see uh, whether you are guilty of anything. They can, they can, they're trained to determine what your eye and your emotions are, and they could tell you. I know, because I experienced it. Police officer pulled me over one time, and, uh, and when he came to the car, he said, you know, I could see that something was wrong by the way your reactions were. By the way you were moving your eyes and your facial reactions. And so they could tell. But what do we think of this statement? God sees everything that I do and every step I take, Job says. Verse 5. Have I lied to anyone or deceived anyone? Verse 6, let God weigh me on the scales of justice, for he knows my integrity. Verse 7, if I have strayed from his pathway, or if my heart is lusted for what my eyes have seen, or if I am guilty of any other sin. Verse 8 says, then let, him, then let someone else eat the crops I have planted. Let all that I have planted be uprooted. Now you could look at these first eight verses and say, boy, this fellow could brag, eh? Because it appears as if Job is really bragging about his goodness, about how good he is, or what good he has been. But he's not really bragging. He is simply responding to his friends. His, well, we could call him his so-called friends, whom he described as miserable comforters. But he was responding to his friends. Uh, who were always who were actually calling him a hypocrite because they had they were convinced that he had done something wrong in his life he had done some sin he had committed and he's being punished for it. But uh, Job was not really responding in these eight verses to his friends as much so as he was responding to God's commandments. His response is based purely on his understanding of the spiritual nature of God's commandments to the effect that God, how the, that these commandments reach and impact the thoughts and intents of the human heart. And that was the basis of his response. He couldn't care less of what his friends were thinking about him. His response was primarily to God and what God's commandment says about how his words impact the thoughts and intents of the human heart. And so there's a principle in there somewhere for us to learn uh, with regards to how we are to respond to God's commandments. And how we are to respond when we are confronted in situations as, as Job was confronted with his three friends. So what is that principle? Well, while it may be better to let our actions speak for us, in some cases, we owe it not only, not only to ourselves, but also to the cause of God. To protest our innocence of the offenses that we have been falsely accused of. In other words, we don't necessarily have to sit idly by and take it all. There are times when we can stand up and defend ourselves. Because that's what Job is doing here with regards to his friends. He was standing up and he was responding, but he was using his response primarily to God's word, not merely to theirs. 
Now, because of the lust of the flesh and the love for the world, uh, two fatal faults that we have in our world that are always confronting us, we see it every, at every turn that we take, two fatal flaws, love for the flesh, lust of the flesh, and love for the world. Job said that he, had, he has to always keep his God up. In other words, he has to always keep sin in check in his life. Something that we need to be mindful of because sin has a way of sneaking up on us when we least expect it. And so because of these two fatal faults, just these two, Job felt that he had to always keep his God up at all times and never let it down. And so since God notices every single thing that we do, every move that we make more than we do, the challenge for us then is that we need to live more cautious lives as we move about and have our being. I'm not careless or reckless, but very, very cautious in terms of every step that we take. Whenever a soldier is in the field and there is knowledge that there are minefields around, that soldier has to be very cautious in how he steps. And in a similar fashion, we need to be the same way in this world that we live in. Because the devil has put a lot of minds out there in the field of life for us. And we need to be careful and cautious on how we live that we may not step on those minds. But not only was Job extremely careful about avoiding every sinful way of getting wealth or making money, but he also dreaded all forbidden profit as much as forbidden pleasure shows us how cautious he was in his life about keeping sin in check. And so we need to be mindful that of all of the worldly passions that we have, they can be used or lost with comfort if they are obtained honestly, if we get them honestly. Because without the strictest honesty and faithfulness in all of our dealings, every single one of them, we lack the solid evidence of true godliness. And that's one of the ways that Satan can trip us up. So that's a principle that we need to keep in mind. But notice what he says in verse 9 to 12. He says, if my heart has been seduced by a woman, or if I have lusted for my neighbor's wife, verse 10, then let my wife belong to another man. Let other men sleep with her. For lust is a shameful sin, a crime that should be punished. Verse, five, verse 12 says, it is a fire that burns all the way to hell. It would wipe out everything I own. And so the question here is about where all of the corruption in life comes from. Now remember, the point that Job is making here is he's keeping sin in check. Where? Where? In his heart. In his heart. Because notice what he says. If my heart has been seduced... So he's talking about where corruption in life really comes from, where it begins. It begins in a heart that is deceived, a heart that is tricked, a heart that has been misled. Lust is considered to be a fire in the soul that burns, and that whoever indulges in it will burn. And we see that all the time. But just like a fire, it consumes everything that is good within the soul, everything. Nothing is left untouched. And it turns the conscience into a wasteland, good for nothing. At the same time, it does something else. It stirs up the fire of God's wrath, which can only be quenched by the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, it burns all the way to eternal ruin. So in other words, the only thing that burning lust brings is burning judgment, is what um, Job is saying. And so Job saw it as very, very important for him to keep sin in check in his heart. That's the first area that he kept sin in check. But the second area that he kept sin in check was against his neighbors. Against his neighbors. You know, I was in, in, uh, in the um, Southwest Plaza yesterday, just walked out of Sandy's and was passing the, what is the Siago Sports Lounge. And this fellow stopped me and he said... Um, he pointed to the place and said, is this place you buy numbers? It can't help you, buddy. I don't gamble. So he looked kind of dejected. And, and as I walked on, this other lady came out of another store. And he stopped her and he asked her. And the lady said, oh, yeah, the web shop right over there. 
Now, would I have been keeping sin in check with regards to my neighbor if I had pointed them in the right direction? Would I? I would have been pointing them into something that would have been destructive to him, right? Based on all that we are talking about now with regards to this gambling issue, right? We know how destructive it is. So would I have been keeping sin in check with regards to my neighbor if I had shown him where the web shop is or was, even though I knew? I knew it was. I said, sorry, buddy, can't help you. Don't gamble. But the lady said, right over there. I said, shoot. Because I could have, you know, dissuaded him to go elsewhere. Well, Job had a concern. He felt that he had to keep sin in check with regards to his neighbors as well, how he treated his neighbors. Sometimes we don't even think about that. We think about, about sin. But notice what he says in verse 13. He says, I have, If I have been unfair to my male or female servants when they brought their complaints to me, verse 14, how could I face God? What could I say when he questioned me? Verse 15, for God created both me and my servants. He created us both in the womb. Verse 16, have I refused to help the poor or crush the hopes of widows? Verse 17 says, have I been stingy with my food and refused to share it with, with orphans? Verse 18, no. From childhood, I have cared for orphans like a father. And all my life, I have cared for widows. Verse 19 says, whenever I saw the homeless without clothes and, and the needy with nothing to wear. Verse 20 says, did they not praise me for providing wool clothing to keep them warm? Now, one of the things that Job was during his, his better days was a magistrate. And so when he talks about uh, turning away uh, those who, are, who come to him with complaints, he was talking about being a just magistrate when people came to him for justice. And so he says, as a magistrate, he says, my conscience is clear. Conscience being a sense of right and wrong, which you kind of, people are confused about today. Not many people know what a sense of right and wrong is. But Job says, my conscience was clear regarding my behavior toward the less fortunate. In other words, he was caring to all and hurtful to none. That's a good way to keep sin in check with regards to our neighbors. To be caring to all and hurtful to none. Good example to learn from Job. But notice the philosophy which kept him from being mean-spirited and unmerciful, which had been the opposite of what he was being. Verse 21. He says, If I raise my hand against an orphan, knowing the judges would take my side, speaking about injustices here now, verse 22, Then let my soul to be wrenched out of place. Ouch. Boy, that would be painful. But he goes on for it. He says, let my arm be torn from its socket. Everybody, anyone ever had an arm that was out of joint? Painful when they put it back, right? Or when they tried to put it back. Real painful experience. But he chooses a very painful experience to express his disfavor with uh, not being helpful to those who are less fortunate. Verse 23, he says, that would be better than facing God's judgment. For if the majesty of God opposes me, what help is there? In other words, I would prefer, I would much prefer to treat my, my servants, my neighbors in a good way rather than for God to have to deal with me. He was more afraid of what God would do to him if he mistreated the less fortunate than what anybody else could do to him. And he uses this example of his joint being out of place and his arm out of socket to give an, a, a graphic picture of how serious he really was. And so the point is, uh, the point that, that Job is making here that we can take from this is, concerns for worldly interests may keep us from actual crimes, but only the grace of God can make a person hate, fear, and avoid sinful thoughts and desires. Only God's grace, if we rely on it, can do that. And so Job kept sin in check against his neighbors, as well as in his heart. But then there's a third area that uh, Job kept sin in check in his life, and that was primarily against God. And probably that's one of the areas that we, most, we mostly focus on when we think about sinning. We don't too much think about sin with regards to our hearts and our neighbors. We mostly fear God. And that's the one who we are concerned about when we think about sinning. But Job was concerned about that too, about God too. And he uses four objections 
uh, from verses uh, 30, 24 to 34 that show how he kept sin in check uh, with regards to God. Verse 24, 25, he says, Have I put my trust in money or felt secure because of my gold? Verse 25, Have I gloated about my wealth and all that I own? In other words, Job is saying that he never set his heart on the wealth of this world. Now, many people are doing that today. And the fellow I ran into, he wanted to go to the place to see if he could make a couple of dollars. He could wager his couple of dollars. And when I passed back, by the way, we passed back that way, and he was still in the area. We saw him on the sidewalk, and he was counting some money. I don't know if that's what he won, or he got some more money, he was going to buy some more numbers. Right? But how many prosperous people can say truthfully to the Lord, that they have not rejoiced in their huge profits. How many people do you know that are wealthy that would not say to the Lord, Lord, I rejoice in the huge windfall that I made the other day? Uh, people will go to the Lord when they lose money. You know, someone told me the other day, we just lost $50,000 overnight. Just like that. Because we violated a, an employment act that the government had. And I thought, he was talking, I thought he was talking about Wall Street. Because only Wall Street, I know you could lose that kind of money overnight. But he said, no, we violated an employment regulation, and we lost $50,000. That was the penalty. But how many people would you, do you know that would truthfully say to the Lord that they rejoice in their huge profits? Because of the drive to be rich, the Bible reminds us that many ruin their souls and starve themselves through with many, many sorrows. And you see it happening over and over all around us today. But Job had another objection that he mentions in verse 26 through 28. He says, Have I looked at the sun shining in the skies or the moon walking down its silver pathway? Verse 27. And been secretly enticed in my heart to throw kisses at them in worship? Verse 28, if so, I should be punished by the judges, for it would mean that I have denied the God of heaven. In other words, Job said, I've never been guilty of idolatry. Never once. That's the point. Never been guilty of it. Idolatry does two things. First of all, it corrupts people. We know that. But the other thing it does, it, it provokes God to orchestrate judgment on a nation or on people but he had another objection he says it was 29 and 30 he says have i ever rejoiced when disaster struck my enemies or become excited when harm came their way no he says in verse 30 i have never sinned by cursing anyone or by asking for revenge in other words he never desired nor had he delighted in his worst enemy being hurt in any way, shape, or form. Can we say that? that whenever someone hurt us, the, the best thing that we want for them is what? Punishment. We want them to hurt as much as they hurt us. In fact, when we have something bad happen to them, we say that's good for you. Which means, it means it's bad. But bad means good, and good means bad, right? That's good for you. You deserve it. You had it coming. Things like that. But Job said, no, I've never been guilty of doing that. Never. Because, you see, I kept sin in check with regards to God. And I know God would have responded. Remember, the Bible tells us that if we, if we, if we rejoice when disaster comes to our neighbors, he'll withdraw it. He will pull back. Because judgment belongs to him. And so the principle then for us to understand from what Job is saying here then is, if others hate us, it's no justification for us to have hatred toward them. None whatsoever. We like to say two wrongs don't make a right. That's basically what it amounts to, what Job is saying. But then he had another objection. Uh, verse 31 and 32. He says, my servants have never said, let others go hungry. He let others go hungry. Have I, I have never turned away a stranger, but I've opened my doors to everyone. The point, he says, I've never been unkind to strangers. 
And of course, we know that's a principle that we are to live by. Hospitality is a Christian duty. But then he goes on in verse 33, he says, Have I tried to hide my sins like other people do? Concealing my guilt in my heart? Verse 34, Have I feared the crowd or the contempt of the masses so that I keep quiet? I kept quiet and stayed indoors. To put it in a nutshell, Job stated that depending on wealth and wealth for happiness is not only idolatry, but also an outright rejection of dependence on God. An outright rejection of God because we are refusing to depend on God and God alone. The obsession with money and possessions embraced by our society today is often excused as a necessary evil or simply the way things work, just the way things are in the world today. Just accept it. Grin and bear it. While there's never been any society at any time in history that has not valued the power and status of money, such as, our society, such as in our society, God has a standard for his people for living in that kind of a society, or any society. And that's just, that standard has always been the same. It hasn't changed. And it's been very, very clear. And that is, keep sin in check. We saw it in the life of Cain and Abel from the very beginning of the dawning of history. He told Cain, keep sin in check. It's crouching at the door. Watch it. Keep it in check. Keep it under control. And so that has always been God's standard for his people in every society throughout the ages of time. And so there's a principle then for us to learn from that, and that is, it's an absolute must. It's an absolute necessity for every believer, every true believer that is, to cleanse themselves of at least three things. A deep-rooted desire for extra power. Everybody wants a little more power than they always have, than they already have. If you offer it to them, they won't refuse it. They won't ask for it but they won't refuse it. And so there's a deep-seated desire in all of our hearts to have a little bit more power. The second thing is prestige or status. Who turns down status? Everybody wants it. Nobody denies it. Some may not go after it, but it doesn't mean that they won't want it. And then the third thing is possession and wealth. Boy, nobody ever turns that down, right? That's why we have such a problem today with the, with the web cafes and the gambling. Because everybody wants it. Those three things are that are absolute must for true believers to cleanse themselves of in this world that we live in. There must also be a never refusal uh, to share our resources with our neighbors near and far who have desperate physical needs that we know about. The Bible reminds us that if we uh, shut our bowels to those in need, there's coming a time when we're going to be in need and the bowels are going to be shut towards us as well. And it's something that we ought to be mindful of. So Job also stated that he, he was one who was, in verse 34, 30, 33 and 34, the last verses in the, in the chapter, he stated that he was not one to try to hide his sin as other people do. He didn't conceal his sins. He didn't cover up our sins. Because we know that when we create patterns, patterns of deception, by fear that our sins will be exposed, people are going to look at us in a different way. Job said, that was in me. I'm not the one. I, I'm not like that. I'm not the one to hide my sins. And that was a good point that he was making to his friends because that's what they were accusing him of. He said, Job, you're hiding something, man. Just fess up. Fess up like a man. Job says, no, I'm not the one to do that. I'm not guilty of anything. So we, 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 we put up patterns of deception so that we can look good to others. We tell lies so that we can look good uh, to others. But no one can hide from God, can they? We saw in the previous verse, God says he knows every step. He sees everything that we do, and he knows every step that we take. And Job was very much aware of that. So the question that we confronts us tonight, all of us, myself included, do we try to keep people from seeing the real us? Do you try to keep people from seeing the real you? by sin and deception, cover up and lies. When we acknowledge our sins, we free ourselves up. Do you realize, do you, do, do you notice how free you feel after you've confessed some sin that you've committed? 
You have no, no burden weighing down on you. Whenever a person is guilty of something, they walk around with a weight on their shoulders all the time. Not only on their shoulders, on their head, but they're always looking over their shoulders. Somebody's going to find out. That's the fear. But when we acknowledge our sins, like we did this evening before uh, remembering the Lord, we free ourselves to receive forgiveness and new life from God. So Job kept sin in check in three areas of his life. The final area was he kept sin in check against God, one that we focus on mostly in our lives. So how about us tonight? How about you? Are you keeping sin in check in your life, in your day-to-day goings and comings? Are you keeping sin in check in your heart, against your neighbors, against God? Another question, final question. How has Job's example of keeping sin in check impacted you tonight? Will it impact you as he leave here tonight? We know what Job went through. We know all the suffering and the agony that he went through. And he wasn't guilty of anything. Primarily because he was a man who kept sin in check in his life. You know the Bible tells us that he made sacrifices all the time. And even if he thought his sons and daughters had committed something, he made a sacrifice and offering for them as well. That's the kind of man who kept sin at bay. He kept it in check. Do we want to follow his example? That's our challenge tonight. As we leave here and you go out through the course of the week, I want you to remember Job. Remember how he kept sin in check because it's always going to confront us. It's always going to be there. Somewhere around the corner is going to be lurking. As God told Cain, it's crouching at the door. It's ready to leap. Will you let it? Or will you keep it in check? Amen? Father, we thank you and praise you tonight for your servant Job. The life that he lived, so much so that you could boast about him. He was a man of character. He was blameless. He was upright. And he had a way of keeping sin at bay, keeping it in check. Good example for us to follow, if there's any that we can follow. We pray, O Lord, that we may remember him as we move about and have our being during the course of the week and we are confronted with various situations. Help us to remember how we can keep sin in check. Bless us now as we separate. Take us to our homes as your blessed benediction, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. The Lord bless you as you go.